My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. So good to see all of you here uh, and, and worshiping God and part of this seminar. Now, before I get into the message, I want to seize a teaching opportunity here. I just, I just felt led to go in this direction. Um, just take a moment and reflect on something. I'm sure most of you are aware of the events this week uh, surrounding Professor Gates, an African-American a professor at Harvard, and this altercation that happened with the law. And then uh, President Obama commented on it, and, and the controversy kind of got fueled, and it got pretty hot there for a little bit. Uh, now there is uh, some calming going on because uh, the president has, I think, wisely called the white police officer, uh, as well as Professor Gates, to come to the White House and to have a beer. And uh, a multitude of problems can be solved that way through relationships. Now, I, here's the thing. I, I'm not going to comment on that particular incident, but I want to make an observation here. Uh, you know, for, for, for people who are followers of Jesus and are called to manifest the diversity of God's kingdom and the beauty of his creation and to be reconcilers, we've got to notice something here. And wh what I notice is that whenever there is an incident that involves uh, white police officers or other embodiments of the law altercating or having conflict with ethnic minorities. The country tends to get, and the church tends to get polarized. Things get activated. And it breaks down largely along racial lines. It tends to be the case that white folks tend to trust the, 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 the white law enforcer and ethnic minorities tend to empathize more with the, 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 the non-white person involved in the incident. And that certainly happened this last week. What that tells us is that there's different worlds going on here in America. People live in very different experiences. And so we interpret events in very different ways. And we've got to be okay talking about this. Here, here, it's like this. I, as a white person, have... Never once. You know, I've had my share of run-ins with the law before I was a Christian quite frequently. But I never have once been pulled over, questioned, interrogated, harassed for reasons that weren't obvious. I've always known why I'm being pulled over. <laughs> Among my relationships with non-whites, in particular African-Americans, very few of them can say that. In my experience... Uh, you know, the police, the police force has always been safe and, and, and fair and just. And I think in general they are. But uh, uh, very few of the relationships I have with non-whites, can they say that? Uh, most can report some events where they felt like they were profiled. And for some, it's been a fairly regular occurrence. Now, the thing is this. If racial profiling is going on, and I'm quite sure it is, I'd be the last person to know about it because it doesn't happen to me. And if I sort of normalize, make normative my experience, I'll look at those who say racial profiling is going on, and I might be inclined to think, oh, come on, they're exaggerating, they're playing the race card or whatever. The only way privileged white folks can learn about things like racial profiling is by having relationships with people who aren't white and listening and learning and submitting yourself to, to their life experience. And it's through dialoguing with one another that we can broaden our horizons, get out of the myopia of our judgments and the myopia of our own cultural experiences, and now begin to bridge the racial gap that still continues to this day, not only in this country, but in the church. 
All we need is relationships. And so I want to encourage us to look around at your friendships. And if everybody looks just like you, I want to encourage you to branch out a little bit. Intentionally develop relationships with people who are different from you. That's the kingdom. Amen? That's the kingdom. I really think Barack Obama has got the right idea. Programs aren't going to fix this. Policies, laws, it's not going to fix it. There needs to be relationships. And if there's any relationships developed, it's got to be within the church. For we're called to manifest ahead of time the beauty of the kingdom in which people from all tribes and all nations and every tongue and every culture come together around the throne and worship our Lord. All right. That's not what my sermon's all about. I just want to seize a teaching moment and say that. The message this morning is entitled, The Wailing God. And we're in the book of Luke, of course, and we're up to chapter 19. And I'll be reading three verses here. Luke says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Therefore, the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Pray with me here. Father, open our spiritual eyes to see, to see truth, to see you, to see you in all of your beauty, and purge from our minds. Use this message, Lord, to purge from our minds all of our false conceptions of you and false understandings that just block our growth and block our relationship with you. Open our eyes that we may see in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So here's the scene. If you were here last week, uh, you'll recall that Jesus uh, is now coming down the Mount of Olives and he's heading into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And all the people are rejoicing and all the people are singing and praising God because they think he's going into Jerusalem to liberate Jerusalem from the oppression of the Romans. They think he's going to be welcomed by the temple authorities. They're singing Psalms 118 we saw last week, which is all about the king uh, coming in victoriously and, and uh, the temple authorities welcoming him. And they're applying that to Jesus. As they're having this celebration, Jesus begins to weep because he realizes, he understands just how much they don't get it. All of their theology, their piety is centered on Jerusalem. This is the main thing the Messiah is supposed to do, liberate Jerusalem. In fact, this was even clear when, at Jesus' birth. When he was brought into the temple, the prophet Anna said this, coming up to them at, at, the very, at that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were, look at this, looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That's what it meant to be pious in the first century. You were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is what the Messiah was supposed to bring. So these folks all are just so excited because they're sure that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore he's going to redeem uh, and free Jerusalem. Uh, it's what the Messiah was supposed to do. It's hard for us Westerners to really get on the inside of a geographically defined spirituality because we're just not there. To us, land is kind of land. 
But to uh, conservative Jews to this day and to conservative Muslims to this day, and this is certainly true of the Jews of the first century, land is everything. Land is extremely important. If we don't understand that, we'll never understand the conflict in the Middle East. There's sacred land. That's why to this day, uh, conservative Muslims get upset when there's non-Muslims on with the land they consider to belong to Allah. It's like you're violating the land. Land is everything. And so Jerusalem was the center of their geographically defined spirituality. And they think Jesus is coming in to uh, redeem uh, Jerusalem and free it from Roman oppression. And so they're celebrating, anticipating victory and having this, this great time full of excitement. And in the midst of this party, picture this now, in the midst of this party, Jesus starts to cry. The word, it's translated weep, but it actually, in the Greek, kleo, uh, it's a stronger word than that. It's not just a little tear. He, he didn't shed a tear. The, the word has more the connotation of wailing. He, he was in travail. So you got a picture, right? picture Jesus on this donkey, and he's starting to just flood tears and wail as all the people are just celebrating around him, having a good time. I don't know if they noticed it or not, but he was sort of dampening the party. And then he gives this very gruesome, ominous prophecy. He says that Jerusalem's going to be hemmed in on every side by the enemy. Now, in the ancient world, what would happen is people, when an enemy attacked, they'd, they'd, they'd lock themselves up in their, their city walls and stay there. And what enemies would do if they really were serious about conquering these people is they'd starve them out. You don't allow any food in, they cut off their water supply, and you don't let any people out, so you just sort of kill them that way. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that you're going to be hemmed in on every side, barricaded. And then when you're too weak to fight, the enemy's going to come in and they're going to dash you and your wives and your children to the ground. Men, women, and children are going to be slaughtered. And he's crying as he says this. It was all fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome finally decided they've had enough with the Jews and they went in and completely ransacked the city. And the reason why this nightmarish thing happened to them, Jesus says, was because they didn't know what would bring peace which is to say they didn't know, they didn't recognize the time of God's visitation, which was Jesus himself. Another veiled reference to his own divinity. When he comes, God is coming, but the people were too spiritually blind to see it, which is why he got crucified. And in that sense, what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD was judgment. As happened so many times in the past with Israel, when they push God out of the picture, judgment comes on them. Now, there's three very important teaching points I want to bring out of this. Some of my messages are more motivational, uh, kind of oriented. Others are rather theological. And this one is definitely in the theology camp. So you might want to take notes. Important theology points. Number one, this episode with Jesus reveals that God doesn't always get his way. Jesus is crying. There are people who think, and there's a long tradition of this in church history, but people who define God's greatness in terms of his control. And since God is the greatest possible, well, then they think God must have all the control. And so they think everything that happens is God doing it, or at least it fills into his, his plan. Everything operates according to his plan. Not one thing happens that's not according to his plan. He's a micro-controlling God. And in their view, that's kind of why he's great. And so everything that happens, good or bad, it's part of God's plan. Your child gets sick and dies, well, it's part of God's plan. Your child gets kidnapped, that's part of God's plan. Your spouse comes down with cancer, it's part of God's plan. The Holocaust happens, it's part of God's plan. And ultimately, someone goes to hell, well, that's part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. 
And uh, it's... And these are the folks who will say whenever tragedy happens, well, God knows what he's doing. He's still on his throne. God's time is the right timing. You know, you just kind of have to go along with it. Um, it's done a lot of damage. Because if God's doing it all, there's a lot of bad stuff happening. And now it's very hard not to blame God for all the bad stuff in the world. I submit to you that that is not a biblical view. God is sovereign for sure, but I don't think he's a micro-controlling deity. Not everything goes his way. Jesus has got to be our ultimate picture of God. He's the word. He's the truth. If you see me, you see the Father. He's the ultimate revelation of what God is like. And here Jesus is weeping. He's crying over what's going to happen. He's not doing it to Jerusalem. He's crying over what's going to happen to Jerusalem. In fact, this isn't the first time he's done this. Uh, Earlier in the book of Luke, chapter 13, we were there about a year or two ago, it says this, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, you were not willing. God doesn't always get his way. Jesus reveals what God is like, and God is saying, I want to protect you, but you don't want me to. I, I want safety for you, but you don't want me to. I want to bless you, but you don't want me to. God doesn't always get his way. You were not willing. And you find this throughout the gospel. In, in Luke chapter 7, which was about five years ago, uh, we, we read, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Look at, notice that. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. God had a purpose for them. God loves them. Jesus loves them. Yeah, he spoke harsh words to them sometimes, but he loves them. That's why he spoke harsh words. God had a purpose for them, But just because God's got a purpose for them doesn't mean the purpose is going to get done because it requires their cooperation for it to get done. They rejected God's purpose for their life. We often say things like, God's got a perfect plan for your life. And that is true. The thing is, it's a plan. We sing about it today. It's a plan. It's not a script. It's a plan. It's what God hopes to be true about you, but you've got to say yes to it. And it's in your best interest to say yes to it, but you do have the free will to say no to it and do life the hard way. God doesn't always get his way. Not what he wishes for us, not what he wishes for the world. You find this throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 30, for example, to give one more example, the Lord says to Israel, woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. See, we're free agents, and we can have our own plans. Our job is to bring our plan in line with God's plan, but we have the capacity to say no to that. Here God is saying, you're doing all these plans, but they're not my plans. You're making all these alliances, but it's not according to my spirit. My spirit's in in your hearts trying to move you in different ways, but you keep suppressing it and quenching it and pushing me out of the picture, and that's why you're adding sin upon sin. If everything happened according to God's plan, well, then how could there be sin in the world? Because sin, by definition, is resisting God's plan. God doesn't always get his way. He's a sovereign God. He's in control of the entire world. And whatever happens, he has a plan in place uh, to bring good out of it. He brings a purpose to events, but he doesn't have a purpose for the events. A lot of stuff happens because of the plans of beings other than God. So he's always able to weave it into his purpose, but it doesn't happen for his purpose necessarily. And he never controls what people do. He's not a micro-controlling deity. And that's part of his greatness. An insecure God would be controlling everything, but God's more secure than that. 
And so he invests people with free will and angels with free will. And when angels and, or people make decisions that bring about destruction on themselves or on, other, or on others, when people make evil decisions, that's about them. It's not about God. We end up often blaming God for stuff that he was trying to prevent. But God doesn't always get his way. That's why the world really is a war zone, and there's stuff that's happening that's not uh, coming from the hand of God, that's not part of his plan at all. Number two, and this will help help a lot of people as they're wrestling with the Old Testament. This is one that's becoming increasingly dear to me as I've been wrestling with the Old Testament. I'm now in the process of writing a book called Jesus versus Jehovah, trying to reconcile the warring God of the Old Testament with the crucified God of the New Testament. And this is something I think comes out of this passage, and I, I see a pattern throughout Scripture. God punishes, or at least often punishes, I think this is his normal mode of operation. God punishes by withdrawing his protective hand. Now, this will be new for some people, so follow me on this. Jesus says this disaster is coming on Jerusalem because they did not know what would make for peace, and they were too spiritually blind to recognize the time of God's coming. So it's, it's, it's really coming as a judgment on Jerusalem. What would bring peace is embracing God. When we push God out of the picture, we are inviting violence and destruction into our life. We live in the middle of a war zone. There are forces of evil all around us, and the only thing that keeps any semblance of order in this world is God's loving presence uh, holding the forces at bay. Now, that doesn't mean that when bad things happen to you, it's because God withdrew his protection. Don't think that. God can be protecting you, and yet that doesn't mean that agents still don't have free will and that spiritual forces still have free will. We can never uh, take the complexity of the world and the transcendence of God and put it into a nice little formula. When we do that, we end up blaming God or blaming people. The world's a lot more complex than that. So this isn't some kind of magical formula that where you can deduce like Job's friends did that if, that if uh, evil's happening to you, well, it's just because you're not walking right with God or something of the sort. Not saying that. At the same time, if God withdraws his presence and withdraws his protection in our life, then we are on our own. And all hell can break loose because the reality is we're surrounded by hell all the time. And that is the judgment of God. When an individual or a group rejects God to the point where God in his wisdom sees that there's no longer any uh, hope in his striving with that person or that group, he lets go of them. Now, he grieves when he does that. He cries when he does that, but he has to do that. When he sees that it's no longer going to do any good to keep on striving with people, he then lets them go. And that is the judgment of God. Uh, When the judgment was coming on Jerusalem... It wasn't God doing it. God was allowing it because they pushed God out of the picture. But it was the Romans doing it. God wasn't killing the kids. God wasn't starving them. God wasn't building the barricades. The Romans were doing that. And they were evil in doing that. But God's saying, if you're going to push me out of the picture, then evil will run its course. And in that sense, it is a judgment from God. And he cries while it happens. Oftentimes in the Bible, when it speaks of God sending disaster or bringing a disaster on a, on, a, on a person or on a people group, if you look at the context carefully, it's clear that what it means is that God is simply allowing it to happen. But because he's the God of the universe, the Old Testament authors simply ascribe it to him. What he permits is spoken of as though he were the one doing it. A really good example of this is uh, in, in uh, Exodus uh, as the Lord is preparing to bring his people out of, out of Egypt uh, on, the pas- on the night of the Passover, it says this in verse 12. 
On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. So there it looks very much like Yahweh is going to do the killing. But if you look 11 verses later, it says this. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, so it still looks like Yahweh is going to do the killing, it says, He will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Looks like Yahweh's causing it, but then you read a little more carefully, he's not causing it. It's just that there's this destroyer out there apparently who delights in killing anyways, and God is protecting us from that destroyer. But in this case, as judgment against the Egyptians who have already been given a lot of chances uh, to let the Israelites go, God's saying, if, that, if I don't see the blood on the doorpost, I'm not going to prevent the destroyer from doing it. What God allows is often spoken of as though God were the one doing it. And that's the way it is throughout the Bible. God's judgment is letting evil have its way. God grievingly says, if that's what you want, I've been working in your life trying to get you to do otherwise, but if that's what you want, I now see there's no longer any purpose for me striving with you. I have to surrender you over to the consequences of your decision. Now, even when he does that, he's hoping for redemption. If there's any possibility of redemption, God always holds out hope, but now you kind of got to learn it the hard way. And so he, he turns you over. A good case of this is Romans. The very Romans, by the way, who very shortly after Paul wrote this, were going to attack uh, Jerusalem and do their slaughtering. They were, it was barbaric. And Paul here says three times in the span of six verses, he says, therefore, God gave them over because of the rebellion, pushing God out of the picture all the time. Finally, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. God gave them over to shameful lust. Two verses later, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, they pushed God out of the picture. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. God tries to save people from themselves, but if they persist in the rebellion... God says, if that's the way you want to go, I've got to let you go. And he cries. Now, to the Romans, this was probably good news. No more conviction. We get to do what our nasty hearts desire without conviction. But Paul looks at this, and this is the worst thing that can ever happen. When God finally gives up on you, so it, it, it is his judgment. You see this throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, a good case is, is Isaiah chapter 10. You know, when God's bringing judgment on, on, on Israel in, in chapter 10, he, he talks about Assyria as being the rod of his anger. And it looks like God is sort of going to pick up the nation of Assyria and just sort of clobber Israel with it. But you read the whole context, and it's simply a matter of, of God letting Assyria do what Assyria wants to do. He's been preventing Assyria from doing what Assyria wants to do, but he has a covenant with Israel. And the covenant was, if you walk with me, I'll protect you from your enemies. If you don't walk with me, you're on your own. And so God just says... Cryingly, you're on your own, and now Assyria attacks them, and, um, uh, and that's the judgment of God. But God didn't make Assyria do that. God didn't make Assyria to be the, the kind of evil nation that would do that. In fact, if you read Isaiah 10 carefully, God turns around and punishes Assyria for being the kind of nation that would do such a thing. It shows you God is not a micro-controlling God. In fact, there's some cases where God allows a nation to attack Israel or however he's orchestrating his providential history, and it's a judgment of God. But God gets mad at the nation that he used to bring about the judgment because they went too far. And Zechariah says this, Zechariah 1, the Lord says, I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. They feel so smug. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Think about this. 
God, God was angry with Israel, and so he says, okay, hands off, you know, you can do what you want to do, you evil nations. But then he really gets mad because they went way beyond what he expected them to do. Uh, and, and they added to the suffering. And, and so now he's mad. You went too far. I wasn't that angry. Man, you went in there and just wreaked havoc, so now he brings judgment on those nations. And it just shows that God is not a puppeteer God. He's not out here doing the direct affliction. He's trying to prevent the world from destroying itself and prevent nations from destroying itself and prevent individuals from destroying themselves. But when we push God consistently and persistently out of the picture, there comes a point. It's an ominous point where God says, okay, I've got to let you go your own way. And he cries, but that is the judgment of God. I'm convinced this is the, 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 the best way to understand the, the sense in which Jesus was punished on our behalf. Uh, some people get really caught up in, 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 in a theological quagmire because they think that the father genuinely like, like was wrathful to, towards the son and kind of beat up and killed his, his, his son and, and, and made the son guilty for what we did and it causes all sorts of theological problems. But I don't think that's how the New Testament intends it. Jesus was punished in our place. He was our substitute. He was our sacrificial atonement. But the way that it talks about that most of the time in the New Testament is just the same way it talks about God delivering nations and people over to their own sin and their own consequences of, of, of their rebellion. Uh, God punished Jesus in the sense that he punishes Assyria he, or, or punishes Israel. He delivers Jesus over to the evil people and the evil powers to do what they want to do. In that sense, he bears the judgment that we all deserved. But it's at the wrath of people and the wrath of the powers, not the, the wrath of God. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says this, This man, Jesus Christ, was handed over, look at that language, handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God, out of love, delivered up his son, put him into the lion's den of iniquity and said, you can have your way with him. And Jesus, out of love, volunteered to do this. He, he wasn't a, uh, you know, a reluctant third party. No, out of love for humanity, this was what it would take. This act of love is what it would take to redeem us. In the sense that God orchestrated it, it was punishment from God, but the ones who actually carried this out were wicked men and wicked principalities and powers, and God didn't make them wicked. He didn't make them do anything. He just had them play into his plan by allowing them to do what they wanted to do anyways. And as you know, the whole thing backfired, which is why God is wise and victorious. See, God is not a vengeful Zeus who throws thunderbolts at people. Uh, he judges, he judges, he has to. He chastises people and nations. But he does it by allowing himself to be pushed out of the picture. He's not a microcontrolling deity. And then he lets evil run its course. And when he does... When he does that, he, he weeps. Even then, as I said, his hope is for ultimate redemption. And you find this throughout the Old Testament. Even when he's judging e Egypt, if you read Ezekiel 16, he's hoping for Egypt to eventually come to know him. And Assyria, and Babylon, and all these other nations. There, you'll find these messages of hope and redemption sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. So even when God delivers people up, if there's any hope for, their, for them to ever turn around, that's what God's hoping for. But sometimes we've got to learn it the hard way. It's like with our kids, you know, we, some kids get it quick and, and fast. They, they listen to us. Other kids, not so much. And they're the ones who have to learn through the lessons of life. And they got to bump their heads into the wall and, and reap the consequences of their own decisions. But we have to let them go as parents. And it grieves us, 
but that's the only way that they can learn. Well, that's, that, that's how it is with God. He withdraws when he's pushed out of the position uh, out of our lives consistently, and he lets evil work its destructive uh, force. Which leads to my third point. God weeps. In fact, God wails when we reject him. Jesus is here weeping for Jerusalem. And the reason is because he loves Jerusalem. He's not bringing this about. He just knows that it's going to happen. And that reveals God's heart because Jesus is our definitive revelation of who God is. God's heart was crying for Jerusalem and God's heart was crying for all of Israel and God's heart cries for the whole world. It's, it's, it's interesting about how hard it is for some people, in fact, many people, to envision God crying. I think we've been conditioned by a pagan view of God which tells us, and a, and a very masculine, a stereotypical masculine view of God, which tells us that crying is weak. And since God is not weak, he must never cry. And I want to submit to you that that's a completely pagan uh, understanding. If Jesus is the definitive revelation of God, well, here Jesus is crying, and that should tell us that God cries. We have trouble envisioning that sometimes. We have no trouble recognizing that God gets angry, picturing God as angry. That's easy for us. Picturing God as crying is sometimes very hard. And what this passage and many others show is that when, God, uh, when we push God out of our lives and he has to discipline us by allowing us to reap the consequences of our decision, it causes him to cry. It causes him to weep. It causes him to wail. I am convinced that what we call the wrath of God what we call the wrath of God, is simply what God's wailing looks like when our hearts are too hard or our mind is too deceived to be able to recognize his tears. It's the wrath of God. It's a little bit like this, maybe. You know, I, last week I shared that when I was 12 years old, I was going down this hill, a very steep hill with telephone poles going down it. We used to slalom through the telephone poles, really not very bright, and I didn't make the last telephone pole cut off, and so I wrapped myself around the telephone pole and smashed my insides all to pieces. Um, now, my dad had warned me not to go down and told me not to go down that hill. He saw us one time doing that. He goes, what are you, stupid? Yeah. And he goes, I, I, he forbid me to go down that hill. So I wrapped myself around this telephone pole going very, very fast, smashed my insides. But my first thought is, man, am I in trouble. Dad's going to be so mad. I'm laying on the ground and it feels like a javelin's into me. But I'm, what I'm thinking about is how much trouble I'm in. My sister runs over and says, Greg, should I go get dad? I'm, I, and I go, no, I'm fine. I even stood up, and, and my insides were smashed to pieces, but I managed to stand up, and I, I walked, you know, I walked about four or five steps like this, saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, and then finally I fell over and passed out. When I woke up, I was at home, they were calling the ambulance, kind of came to for a little bit. My first thought was, I'm in such trouble. They take me to the ambulance, take me to the hospital, and when I was going in out of consciousness, but my thought was, I am such trouble. I, you know, I, and I was already making up excuses and apologizing and blaming on other people insofar I was able to be conscious. And then there's a time when I was on the hospital bed. They had to do an emergency exploratory operation where they were just going to cut me up and find out what all got damaged. But they had to first pump my stomach. So they were sticking these rubber tubes down my nose to, to pump it. And that was rather unpleasant. And then as they start to take out what was there, within about a second, the tubes become completely red because they're pumping out blood. And when that's happened, I noticed all this red coming out, but my dad began to bawl. And I, my dad didn't usually cry unless he had gotten quite a few drinks in him. 
he wasn't drunk, and he starts to bawl. He starts to cry. At that point, I knew that I must be in pretty serious shape. But it broke my heart to see him crying. And he, all this time, see, all this time, I was worried. I, I, he was mad at me. He's mad at me. He's mad at me. And there was an anger there. I mean, he, 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 there was like, I'm sure there's a part that was angry. But it was because of his love for me. But the dominant emotion, the reason why there was anger is because his heart was breaking, seeing the condition I was in. And it, it turns out if blood comes out that quickly, uh, you are in serious shape. And my dad knew that, and that's why he was crying. I, I think that's God's heart. I think that's God's heart. Uh, out of pure, passionate love for every individual he ever created, his heart breaks when we bring destruction on ourselves. And there's an anger about that because he's angry for us. But the dominant thing we've got to see, yeah, there's that anger, but the dominant thing that's driving it is his tears, it's his sorrow. His heart breaks. There are people on this planet who on a spiritual, metaphorical, metaphorical way are, are having their stomachs pumped right now. They're on uh, their last lifeline. They're dying. And all they can think about is how mad God's going to be. The Zeus thunderbolt throwing God's going to get them. When, if they could just see the true God, he's bawling because he loves these people so much and grieves for the pain that they brought on themselves and the pain that they're going to continue to bring on themselves and others. And yeah, there's an anger there, but the anger... It's simply the front end of a world of pain that God is in. And that's not because God is weak, it's because God is strong. It takes strength to have all the power in the universe and make yourself so vulnerable you're willing to die on the cross. You're willing to cry going into Jerusalem. You're willing to hurt for every human being who hurts. God is a God who cries. And I believe, you know, as we read the Bible, some of it's so harsh and so ugly. But you have to understand there's this progressive revelation as God has to work from the inside of our deceptive views of him and gradually bring enlightenment. We've got to now read the Bible from the end. And the end, the culminating point is Jesus Christ. He says in John 5, all scripture is about me. So we've got to read it through the lens of, of Jesus. And in light of this episode and episodes like this, I believe I'm warranted, in fact, required to, when I look back on the judgments that came on Israel or Assyria, to see a, a bawling God, a crying God. Yeah, they were, they were in touch with the anger, but we see the fuller revelation of the tears that are behind that anger. For every judgment that's ever happened, when God has to let the forces of chaos come back and take over the world in the flood, I believe God is, was crying. There comes a point where he says, if you're going to push me out, I have to, I have to bow out. Because he's, he's not a, God, he's not a course, course of God. And that's his judgment. So I, there's two questions I want to end with here. Number one, there's a warning component to this message. And the warning is this. If we push God out long enough, he'll turn us over. Whatever you do, you get good at doing. So my question is this, to people in this auditorium, to people listening through a podcast. Undoubtedly, there are some who have been pushing God in some respects out of your life. You may still be professing the right things and doing, you know, saying the right things, but you know in your lifestyle that there are ways in which you've been convicted, but you're ignoring it and you're pushing God out of your life. And the warning here, and I don't give it as a scare tactic, I give it just because it's accurate. But the more you do that, the better you get at that. How long did God struggle with the Romans before, you know, he finally said, I got to turn you over to your desires? There's a time when they stopped being convicted about what they were doing. And God says, now you got to go the hard way. If you feel conviction about something in your life, that's the time to change it because there's no promise about tomorrow. Uh, God will always love you. God will always be hoping for your redemption. But there is a point where God sees it's no longer going to do any good to struggle with you, to strive with you. 
You know how it is? You, you, you engage in this sin and there's deep conviction and sorrow. You do it again and, yeah, there's conviction, but not quite as much. You do it a hundred more times and there's hardly any conviction. And there comes a time when you don't even think about it anymore. When you feel the conviction, that's the time to repent. The word repent just means you turn around. You make a decision to go in a different direction. And so if you're listening to this message and that is your life, I want to encourage you now to make a decision to go in a different direction. And I want to encourage you to tell someone about that decision and invite them in on your life to hold you accountable. Because this isn't a game. We're in a war zone and there's forces out there that are going to immediately try to get you to go back to it. So we need accountability. We need to do this in community. Make the decision and turn. Because tomorrow is not promised. Secondly, I want to ask this question. It often happens that we, as we live life in this world zone, we take hits. Some of those hits we bring on ourselves. A lot of the hits just come. You don't need an explanation for why it happened to you in this war zone. Uh, when there's a myriad of free agents, human and angelic, things just happen. But what can happen is if we think of God as the Zeus thunderbolt throwing God, that we end up on some level blaming God for what happened to us. And even though we may come back to God and walk with God and believe in God and worship God, there can be a part of us that still believes that somehow he was the one doing it to us. I heard of a young lady yesterday who was sexually abused, and she thought it was her fault. And that, you know, some of this was happening because she was a bad girl. And if you hold judgments like that, that God somehow had anything to do with the sexual abuse or anything like that, then what it does is it sucks the passion out of your love for God. Your passion for God can never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. And if you think God was somehow pulling the strings back when you were raped or back when you lost a loved one because of a disease or an accident or whatever, well, that will compromise your passion for God. A picture of God has got to be always Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ weeps when suffering comes upon people. And so I, I, I want to encourage you to think about the tough time in your life, the tragedy, maybe the nightmare that happened, and can you envision God crying over that? Paul says that love rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. God is perfect love. When you were weeping, he has perfect love for you, so he was weeping. When you were crying, he was crying. When you were wailing, he was wailing. But you've got to be able to see that. Can you see that? There may, maybe you did bring it on yourself. We do that. And maybe there was some anger there. But can you see that if he's angry, it's because of his love for you? And what's driving the whole thing is not any kind of retaliation. It's not that he's offended or anything like that. It's rather his love for you. He's wailing. He's wailing. And if you look a little deeper beyond the anger, you'll see, like, like with my father, there's a crying God. And welcome him into your life. Now, he, he's not a helpless crying God. No, he's infinitely resourceful, and he gets on the inside of the pain to redeem you out of it. But the healing begins when we can envision God crying with us, entering, he's on the inside of the pain. Just being in solidarity with you in the nightmare itself brings about a healing. And then he works to creatively restore you. I want to end with a prayer, and I want to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and get that prayer. If you just want to kneel or if you just want to sit, feel free to do that. Uh, don't, 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 don't bring a short end to what God is, is perhaps doing in your life. But Father, as we uh, leave this place, this seminar, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to convict those who need conviction. And God, make that as urgent as it needs to be. 
as urgent as it needs to be, because you know how close to the end they are and the resistance to you, Lord God. Break them down and encourage them to turn, to turn now in Jesus' name. And then to connect with others to hold them accountable. And Father, for those of us who have held ugly pictures of you, from whatever source we got them, maybe from the Old Testament, maybe from some experience in our life. God, reveal yourself to be a God of infinite, perfect, compassionate love who weeps when we weep. And God, help us to see that, to see that. Behind judgment is a crying God. And Lord, open our hearts to receive you in all of your beauty so that we may reflect your beauty to others. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen, amen. God bless you guys. Go and build the kingdom. We have assignments back on the hub. Uh, this is a seminar, and I encourage you to pick up the assignments and put them into practice throughout the week. God bless.